good to be here, here today and to proclaim that our God, comma, He is alive. And we remember our God, we remember His Son and the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Appreciate the good words of Brother Nathan, the good songs that are led by Brother Caleb this morning. And invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Revelation, to the last book of the New Testament, where we are going to spend the majority of our time together this morning. We are, as was said by Brother Bill at the outset of our services today, blessed with a number of visitors. Those of you who are from the community or those who are traveling in this area visiting family, whatever the reason for your visit, whatever the reason for you being here today, we are grateful very much for your presence and hope that we can be encouraging to you as you have already been encouraging to us. Last Sunday evening, David did a good job of presenting to us a sermon rooted in Isaiah chapter 6, that kind of introductory section of Isaiah where Isaiah says, I am a man of impure lips. I am not prepared to be doing the job that you are asking me to do, to be this great prophet, to go to the people and to tell them of the wrong they have done and to warn them of the pending doom if they do not change their ways. And of course, you remember as David presented in Isaiah chapter 6 last Sunday evening, if you were here, he comes with an angel and he touches his lips with that coal of fire and says, now that you are pure, you are now prepared who am I going to send? And Isaiah stands up and he says very uh, boldly, here am I, Lord, send me. And at one point in the sermon Sunday evening, David referenced Revelation chapter 4 as a kind of comparison text. And I thought, well, that would be an interesting way to segue into what we wanted to talk about this morning, which is a throne that is set in heaven. I want us to look at the fourth chapter of Revelation today, and you may say, well, there's a lot of similarities between what we're talking about this morning and what we talked about Sunday evening, and if that's the case, then our job is done. We have presented the truth because there are some striking similarities in Isaiah 6 and, and Revelation 4, though written to different groups of individuals, addressed to different types of people but yet all with the same goal in mind of glorifying God and seeing what the throne room was like, seeing what our Savior is like, and one day preparing ourselves for that great room. Before we get to the throne room, though, let's go back and just quickly review what we learned in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And it may be that the first three chapters are the most familiar in the book of Revelation, because once you get to about chapters 5, 6, and 7, then you get a little bit glassy-eyed where you got to uh, figure out what they're talking about, who they're talking to, and the context of what's going on. But we're familiar with chapters 2 and 3 very much because of the context of the writing to those seven churches. Chapter 1 introduced us to a spiritual revelation wherein God says a number of key things. And that's what he's going to say over the course of the next 21 chapters. Chapters 2 and 3 describe the primary recipients of John's message, and it's those churches at Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamos, 
Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then the most uh, perhaps famous or infamous of them is the church at Laodicea. Incidentally, the book of Revelation is addressed to Christians who were living some almost 2,000 years ago uh, at a time of religious and political persecution, and it was written to these seven churches. When I was younger, much younger, I used to think, well, chapters 2 and 3 are to the seven churches, and then for some reason, chapter 4 through 22 is some other group. Well, the whole book, all 22 chapters, is dedicated to educating and encouraging these seven churches, and for that matter, all churches who were going through these difficult times in the first century. And we need to appreciate the fact that early Christians needed to understand that there was a war going on between good and evil. I am no expert on the book of Revelation. There are some preachers and some students of the Bible that, you know, they specialize in certain books or they really have a, an acute knowledge of particular things. And I struggle with aspects of the book of Revelation, I assume, like many Christians do. But one of the key things that we need to appreciate is this concept of a war that is going on between good and evil, between righteousness and unrighteousness, between the forces of godliness and the forces of Satan. And as we progress through the book of Revelation, as you see that war transpiring, we already know how the war ends. We know who wins. We know who loses. We know that God's people always win and that we will always prevail. What I want us to do is to read chapter 4. It's only 11 verses. And then I want us to present four separate scenes. You might picture someone coming on to the scene and saying, this is scene 1. Here's scene 2, scene 3, scene 4. That's what we're doing today. Make sure you got your scene markers ready because we're going to look at four scenes today. Let's read the passage here beginning in verse 1. After these things, I, John, looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard, was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. That's where we got the title from. A throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper or sardius stone in appearance, there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in the front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third living creature had a face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, and they say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, 
The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So I want to look at scene number one and that is the open door. Imagine this great door opening and you're going to see something inside of it. You're going to see that which is now present. You're going to see that which is powerful. John sees an open door with what we might call an open invitation to heaven. By the way, this is the first instance that heaven is referenced by John in the book of Revelation. Not in chapter 1, 2, or 3 does he reference heaven. Sure, he's talking about heavenly concepts, but the idea of introducing heaven doesn't happen until chapter 4 in the first couple of verses there. And I think that's important for us to appreciate. And what happens there in verse 1 as we progress through the text in sequential order is you have the voice of a trumpet. Now, a trumpet is an instrument that is very powerful. And in olden days, and still in some places today, trumpets are used to announce a king coming or some important figure who is going to be represented or some important event that is about to transpire. If a trumpet is played properly, it is beautiful. If a trumpet, and I can say this as one who played trumpet for about seven or eight years, if it's not played well, it's not very pleasant to hear. Those of you that have had children or teenagers growing up and they chose to play trumpet, you probably thought, what have we done? Because you have to listen to them practice, especially hot cross buns, hot cross buns, hot cross buns, over and over and over again in their bedroom. And you're thinking, why did we not soundproof the house better before we had children who would play these instruments? But the fact of the matter is, is a trumpet, when played beautifully, is a beautiful and a powerful thing. It is used to get the attention of John. It's saying, John, something big is about to occur. The trumpet is blaring. The voice of the trumpet is here to announce something that is powerful. Well, what is it that's going to transpire here is that royalty was about to be seen, inviting John to witness that which is about to be revealed. And what is to be revealed is to be a room with a throne, which brings us to the second scene, and that is the throne room itself. You know, we read this passage sometimes with... 2,000 years of history in between, and we probably don't really appreciate what this would have meant to the earlier recipients, to the earlier Christians. But the fact is, is this is a beautiful scene. It is a powerful scene. It's a, it's a pulling back of the curtain into seeing God's abode. And John had that privilege. We see that Paul probably had a similar privilege when he was caught up into that third heaven, as he talks about in his letter to the church at Corinth. But here's what's interesting about the throne room when it says in verse 2, a throne that was set in heaven, that in the course of Revelations chapter, Revelation chapters 4 and 5, the word throne is used 17 times in those two chapters. Apparently, there was something spectacular about the throne. And it's not so much the throne itself, it's who is on the throne, the one who sat on the throne, as verse 2 renders. 
It's of no coincidence that that is the case. It is used exclusively to refer to heaven and the spiritual realm, never a physical throne or a throne here on earth, which is ironic given that there are so many religious folk who believe that Christ is going to come back and dwell on a physical throne in Jerusalem. Those that believe that there's going to be that thousand-year period of reign, those that believe in premillennialism or some form of millennialism, that they believe that there's going to be a physical reign of Jesus on the earth. Remember Cleopas and his friend in Luke chapter 24? They thought that was going to be the same thing as well. When they were confused and they said to Jesus, unknowing that it was him, that we thought that he was going to be the one that was going to redeem Israel and set up his throne in Jerusalem. But it's used exclusively here in a spiritual context. The Holy Spirit does not argue that the Roman throne is important at all. Now, there is some debate, and I, I, I understand, as to the context of the book of Revelation and the particular type of persecutions and the particular timing in which it was written or in which it was received. But one of the things that is abundantly clear is that at some point these people would have been or were familiar with the Roman Empire. And I think it's interesting, and I think it's a point that needs to be made, is nowhere at no time does John say, now, in comparison to the other throne, no, he says, we're not even going to talk about the other throne. Because when it comes to the throne room of heaven, nothing else matters except the one who sits on that throne. No physical power, no political individual, no group of political individuals, no appointed individual, no elected individual matters when it comes to Jesus the Christ because he is the one. In my Bible, where the word one is, it is capitalized in verse two, and yours is likely capitalized as well, to render it important as being the one to whom all power is granted after all, Matthew 28, Jesus says, all power or all authority has been granted or been given to me. Who's on the throne? God is the one on the throne. And as with much of the book of Revelation, the writer here uses over the course of the next two and a half verses, physical descriptions to describe spiritual scenes. In talking about the throne room, what does he talk about? He talks about Jasper and he talks about Sardius. What is true about precious stones? Well, one, that they are precious. What is also true about things that you would buy? He got it at Jared, after all, that time of year, right? What is true about those things? They are valuable. Why is it when you go into a very expensive jewelry store that they have armed guards? Why is it that when you go to the jewelry counters and department stores, they're all locked up very tightly? And why are there cameras searching everything that is going on? Because those things are valuable, or at least you can make the argument we have associated them as being valuable. And why are they valuable? It is because they are rare commodities, because they are rare things. So what is true about these stones, Jasper and Sardius? They're precious, they're valuable, they're rare. And that is true when it comes to God because God is not common and is unlike earth-based authorities. Earth-based authorities come and go, and they come and go. 
Now, you could say, well, wait a minute, earth-based authorities are important, and, and that's true. After all, they have been put there by God. Romans 13 or 1 Timothy talks about the idea of honoring those who are in power, and certainly we are to do so. We are to respect the king. We are to respect the throne, as Paul says in his letter to Timothy. But the fact of the matter is, is those authorities that are present on this earth pale in comparison to the power that God has. And you think about that. That is spectacular. You think about the power that our physical leaders have in this world to be able to, with a stroke of a pen or with a nod of their head, to be able to make big things happen. I mean, do you understand that regardless of who the president is or will be, that this individual has an, an enormous amount of power to basically bring the world to an end, at least in the physical sense of things. I mean, with a push of a button or with a, uh, a series of codes that he has at, at his disposal, bad things can happen very quickly. That's a lot of power. God comes along and he says, nonsense, that's no power. I've got all the power. And John says, looking at the throne room, you will see something that is spectacular. The one who sits there, he is rarer, more precious, and more valuable than any physical leader. That's how powerful the throne is and the one who sits on the throne. Go back to Psalm 97, and I appreciate our brother reading from Psalm 97. You may say, wait a minute, when I read Psalm 97, I was thinking about Isaiah chapter 6 with the smoke that was billowing into the room. And if you thought that, that's great because, again, there are some striking similarities between Isaiah 6 and Revelation chapter 4. But go back, and I just want to read two verses out of the six that we read in Psalm 97. This time, let's read verses 2 and 3. Clouds and darkness surrounded him, very similar to the smoke of Isaiah chapter 6. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about him. The throne here represents holiness and justice, both of which are reserved for God. And that's true. You think about earthly leaders, as much as you may like or dislike a candidate for political office, none of them are holy and just to the degree that God is holy and God is just. You'll never find the perfect leader for this world, except the perfect leader of the universe, God himself and his son, Jesus the Christ. You know what else is interesting, at least to me and Revelation chapter 4, and I'm not about one. I'm not one who is all about trying to find imagery and everything and a meaning to everything. Sometimes you can do so, you just drive yourself crazy and you end up contradicting yourself by saying this represents this and this represents that. But that said, verse 3, it says, There was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald, an emerald rainbow around the throne. What does that mean? Well, as we did in our Bible class a couple weeks ago, I'm about to tell you what it means. I don't know. <laughs> but I do know this, that back in Genesis chapter 9, I'm not sure that it is accidental that God put a rainbow in the sky and a rainbow in the cloud. What was that for? Our, our six-year-olds could tell us what the rainbow represents, right? It represents a promise by God, a, a covenant relationship between God and his people. 
and it represents, so to speak, the mercy and the hope that God has always promised his people. We'll drop down to verse 4 in the text. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders in the throne room, as we considered this second scene. The fact is, is numbers in Revelation must be understood for their figurative significance. If you get to a point where you start trying to literalize the numbers in the book of Revelation, for that matter, the numbers in the New Testament or the numbers in the Old Testament, sometimes you're going to run yourself into a, uh, you paint yourself into a corner that you don't want to be painted into. You have 144,000, you have 24 here, you have 12 here, you have 7 here, you have 3 here, all of which represent different things. But one of the things we need to appreciate is probably what ends up happening here is in the Old Testament, you had 12 tribes, you had 12 sons of Jacob. In the New Testament, you had the 12 initial apostles. And by, by math, with my math skills, having spent three years in the fifth grade, 12 plus 12 is 24. And so the idea seems to be is that when you add the old and the new together, you get the idea of all that is complete in the matter of God's grace. Note what is said of the elders. What do they do? Well, it says three different things here. It says that they wear crowns. What are crowns designed to do? They either exhibit the idea of royalty, one in charge, or more likely based on passages like Revelation chapter 2, uh, Paul's letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the idea of victory. Even today, when you win an Olympic event, you are given a crown, a wreath of some sort to wear. Now, it's not a crown with diamonds on it and uh, various other jewels surrounding it. It's not that valuable, at least monetarily. But it is something to signify that you have won. So what are these elders wearing? They're wearing crowns signifying we've won. We have been victorious. God has granted us that victory. What else are they doing? They are reigning. Go back and look at Ephesians chapter 2 or Romans chapter 5 verse 17. There's some comparison text to appreciate what that may mean. And thirdly, they are clothed in white. Uh, we will have our robes all white and spotless, we sing sometimes, do we not? The idea of standing before God in a stained garment is an impossibility. We must stand before God in pure clothing. And remember that Jesus is the one who wears those white garments that as if no launderer could make them as bright or as white as was the case on the Mount of Transfiguration. So what happens here? God's throne seems to exhibit his power. Lightning and thunder go forth, and that is consistent with other areas in the Bible that describe our God. And then we get to one of my favorite images in all of the book of Revelation, which we'll talk about now, talk about near the conclusion, and then we will literally conclude with in our study this morning. And that is before the throne is this great sea of glass or sea of crystal. In fact, we sing songs about the sea of glass, before the sea of glass or the sea of crystal. Beyond the crystal sea, sometimes we say. What is it that is true about this sea in verse 6? It says that it is like crystal. 
And it seems that if the sea is mysterious in nature. And furthermore, it seems like the sea is a barrier so as to separate people from God. That seems to kind of maybe coincide with some of the imagery of Luke chapter 16, where there is a great gulf that is fixed. I'm not about to suggest that Revelation chapter 4 is talking about Hades as much as it is talking about heaven, which are two totally different things, though they have some striking similarities in their parallels with them. But through the blessing of Jesus Christ, that barrier will be breached. One day, we will appear before God, not just on the day of judgment, but once we have heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant, we will be at home with him, not just for a thousand years, not just for a million years, not just for a gazillion years, but we will be with God forever. Can I make sense of that? Nope. I can't figure that thing out. I can think of what a, what a hundred years would look like or maybe a thousand years, but I can't think of forever. I just doesn't correspond with my brain. But I have a suspicion that when we get there, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. That's how beautiful it will be. And then... Fast forward all the way to Revelation 21, verse 1. It says that the sea will be gone. There'll be no separation between us and God. There will be an interaction between us and God. That brings us to our third scene that we'll spend just a moment or two on before we get to our final scene. Because I want to come back to the sea in just a moment. But I want to spend just a moment on the creatures. And David did a really good job of talking about the creatures, the angels so to speak, that were present in Isaiah chapter 6. But this may be the most alarming part of the story, or of the story, because of the uncertainty that is going on here. Perhaps, and again, perhaps is the key word, they represent the traits of God. Uh, you think about the lion, you think about the calf, you think about the man, you think about the eagle. Some have suggested that the lion represents courage. That's not too far of a stretch. We could probably understand that. That the calf or the cow represents that which is of strength or of being strong. That man is the idea of intelligence and that the fourth creature being the eagle being speed. You say, wait a minute, it seems like we talked about some of these things just a few days ago. And you're right, because when we talked about the uh, seraph, the, the, the seraphim, uh, the angels, they had six wings covering different parts of their body or for different purposes, including for traveling or for speed. And so that brings us back to the point in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, or Ezekiel chapter 10. There's a number of places where perhaps they are significant in representing angels in some sort. Or perhaps they are representative of all creation. Because after all, animals of all type, representative of men in some way, they are all in subject to God's will. 
two things that are true about these creatures in Revelation chapter 4 is that these creatures see everything. Notice the eyes that are present, the eyes which see all these things. This certainly makes sense for God in that God sees us and we see God in all things. And these creatures are praising God constantly. And this makes sense for creation not for God. Certainly, we know that one of the things that angels do is that they render worship to God, much like we render worship to God as well. Which brings us to our fourth and our final scene, and that is the worship that transpires in the last couple of verses. When you view the creatures as men, it helps us to appreciate that their eyes and their focus is wholly on God. It's as if God deserves not just praise for a short period of time, but a consistent and constant praise forever. And he does. Our God deserves praise today, tomorrow, the next day, and forever. And you know, one of the things that frustrates us as human beings living in this earth is you go to a singing we come together and we sing for an hour or so. What happens after 45 minutes or an hour of singing? Your voice starts getting tired. Maybe your mind starts to wander a little bit because you're, you're getting physically exhausted, mentally exhausted because worshiping God requires some energy. In heaven, our voices will not grow tired. Our minds will not wander. And we will be able to sing praises to our God forever and ever and ever. That's going to be spectacular to witness. And you know what? We have witnessed and heard great singings. And we do an awful good job uh, singing. Uh, Keyword on good, not on the awful. Just realize how that came out. We do a really good job of singing, I think. People sometimes have a reputation. This church has a reputation, by the way, of being really good at singing out and singing praises and doing so with the heartfelt. Heaven's going to be a billion times greater than anything we've heard here. The acoustics here are pretty good. The acoustics in heaven are going to be a billion times better. And that's what's going to be spectacular about getting there. And we're going to look at each other and say, this is incredible. Or we may not say anything because we won't be able to say anything because we will be speechless in front of our God. Phase one of worship is the creatures. They praise him for his holiness because he is not an idol. And then they focus on the one God because there's not many. And they focus on the fact that he lives forever because he's not temporal. These themes would have struck home to the first century Christians who would have been enduring significant persecution in the first century. And that's true regardless of whether you date Revelation early or late. That's one of the things I think that is we can appreciate is sometimes we get so caught up in that debate that we lose sight of the fact that these people were really facing some significant difficulties. Phase number two of worship involves the elders. And here comes my favorite part of Revelation chapter four, and probably one of my three or four favorite parts of the entire book of Revelation is that of the elders. The elders, they represent the men who sacrificed for God. They are faithful men. 
They are individuals who have given much for the cause. And what did they do with the crowns that had been given to them as a sign of victory? After all, they have been victors. Revelation 2 verse 10 tells us that a crown will be given to those who are victors. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says where Paul says there's a crown laid up for me, one of victory. They voluntarily cast their crowns toward God by saying you are our total focus. And it reminds us as Christians of the value of humility and it reminds us of Christians that spiritual power is greater than any sort of physical or political power. Think of the scene. Here are these 24 individuals representing creation, representing the superheroes who have done much for God. And then God walks into the room, sits on his throne, and they take off their crowns and they say, we are not worthy to be called victors in your sight. We cast them into the sea. No wonder why we sing casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea or the crystal sea. These people recognize that in God's sight, there is nothing that we can do. Will we stand before him? I don't even know if we'll be able to kneel before him. We may just completely fall before him because he is that great, that awesome, that wonderful. This matters to us today because the fact is, is when we think about victory, and we've used the word victory at least a time or two this morning, victory comes to those who overcome obstacles in life. The fact is, is God must be the true focus of our lives, as was the case in Revelation chapter 4. God was the focus throughout all 11 verses that we read. Thirdly, suffering in this life is not going to last forever. And we are a congregation of people who we know what suffering is. We know what it is to suffer physically. We know what it is to suffer emotionally. We know what it is to suffer spiritually when we see those that we care about not living correct, not living correctly in their lives. Which brings us then to this, that when we see the creator, whether that be in an eternal scene or whether that be yet in this life, when we see the creator, it demands that we worship, it demands our allegiance. And I I wonder... And I'm just speculating some here. I wonder when God gives us that crown and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Will there be an urge on our part to take off that crown and say, I'm not worthy? I don't know exactly how that's going to transpire. I just know that God promises a crown of victory to those who are faithful to him. And that one day when we see him, we may very well be like these 24 individuals who said, you are incredible. We are not. Humility is at the core of who we are as Christians and at the core of what we're trying to be in service to others and in service to our God. This matters to us today as much as it has mattered at any time. If you want to see heaven, if you want to experience the kinds of things that John exhibits for us by way of the Holy Spirit, it will not happen by accident. That's another way of saying no one's going to get to the day of judgment and God says, well done, good and faithful servant. 
And you say, well, I just didn't see that coming. (laughs) Now, there will be a humility assigned to that, but no one will get there accidentally. It is only purposefully that we make it to heaven by God's grace and by our obedience. That requires action on our part. Contrary to what much of the world would suggest, there is something that we must do in order to actually please our God. And it starts with rendering obedience in baptism, repenting of your sins and saying, I'm no longer going to live my life in the past and in my past uh, participation in sin. And I'm going to confess Jesus as the Christ, as the son of the living God. And we're happy to hear you make that confession this morning. If, as a child of God, you've done those things and your life is not right, maybe you've lost sight of humility, you've lost sight of worshiping God, of singing praises to Him in the way that He deserves, and we can help you to come back to the fold of safety or to reinstate you in a place where you are feeling better about your service because you know that it's not been where it should be, we would welcome that opportunity as well. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing at this time.